0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Lloyd Llewellyn Jones for a conversation about the Achaemenid Empire's previous hegemony in the Mediterranean basin. Dr. Llewellyn Jones is director of the Ancient Iran Program for the British Institute of Persian Studies. He's also a professor in ancient history at Cardiff University, based in Wales. He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. King and Court in Ancient Persia, 559-331 BCE, which was published by Edinburgh University Press, and Catesius' History of Persia, Tales of the Orient, which was published by Routledge. Welcome to call, Lloyd.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew. It's good to be here. Very good to be here. Thank you.
0: Okay, so... We're chatting about the Achaemenids' previous um, hegemony in the uh, in the Mediterranean basin. So, uh-huh. so parts yeah. of it, and we'll get into you know where you know what parts. Um, sure. Let's start with a a background uh, question: Who was the Achaemenid Empire?
1: Okay, so the Achaemenids were the uh, indigenous Iranian peoples who ruled the empire. Um, They began their rise to power around about 559 BCE under the auspices of Cyrus the Great, Uh, Kurosh, rose really um, over the next uh, 50 years to control the biggest empire the world had ever seen uh, and really was, uh, ran their, their empire very successfully for almost 200 years um, and was only really um, brought to its knees by the sudden, very sudden takeover of Alexander of Macedon in 330 BCE. Um, it was a very successful empire. It was interconnected with great road systems, great communications, uh, and it really did flourish both east and west. Um, So the Achaemenids are the the dynasty that that rules this. Um, We should note from the beginning, though, of course, Achaemenid is a name that is is, a Greek version of uh, a Persian name, an old Persian name. In old Persian, this dynasty was known as the Chachamanishia. And one of the things that we always have to recall, of course, is the names that we use today traditionally are the Latinized Greek versions of old Persian names. So um, I'll say Darius, for Darius the Great, Persians would have known him as Darabayush. Um, we know Xerxes. Um, the old Persian uh, was uh, Hachsha, uh, Artaxerxes, Artbachasha, and so forth. But we'll stick to the uh, the Latinized versions for now. I think.
0: Okay, and where, on that note, then, where does the term Persian come from? Uh,
1: that's actually a, a quite a complex one. It it actually comes from the Greek term uh, Persa. But in turn, they were hearing an old Persian word, Pars or Parsa, which refers to the area in southwest Iran uh, from which the Achaemenids originated. So pars, pars Parsa was the original. Nowadays, that area in Iran is called Fars, Fars Province. Um, originally, uh, that was was Pars. When the Arabs invaded. Um, Iran in the sixth century CE, um, they changed that to fars because the Arabs couldn't easily produce the, the the sound P at all. So in fact, it's a kind of uh, uh, a mashup of an original old Persian word for the uh, for the area, but then filtered through a uh, uh, a Greek hearing. The alternative uh, way in which the Persians called that part of the world, they they're in their heartland, was uh, Aryan, from which, of course, we get the word Iran today as well. So there's quite a complex etymology uh, behind the term Persian, and I think that's why within the circle of Iranologists, um, in which I count myself, you often find a fluctuation between us using Persia and Iran
0: uh, kind of almost interchangeably. So what would the Achaemenid Empire at that time, so Cyrus the Great's founding, uh, the the what became an empire um, what would they have and it's fine if you want to use it I'm not I, be, because I'm not going to do it justice I'm not going to uh, you know use it uh, continue to use it in the episode but what would they have called themselves what 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 phrase is that
1: so they were definitely Hachimanishia. Um, so they were, were were accumulates and in fact in their inscriptions um, certainly from the reign of Darius the great onwards, They stress time and time and time again their dynastic legacy and their dynastic name. They are deeply, deeply um, concerned with propagating um, their identity as Achimanishia, as the Achaemenids. Um, The name comes from uh, the the founder of the dynasty. He may be a legendary founder. It's quite likely that he was some guy called Achimanish who uh, the Greeks heard as Achaemenes. Um, there are some mm-hmm. stories that say that he was uh, an infant child raised by an eagle, you know, the kind of standard mythologizing that goes on for these kind of founding fathers. So it's hard to know if he really was a, a genuine Persian person. Uh, but but even if he wasn't, it doesn't matter. As far as the uh, the royal dynasty of, of Persia was concerned, uh, he was the genuine McCoy and he was Hachemanish, which gave them their name Hachemanishia.
0: Do you happen to know offhand the first text that actually uses the term uh, Achaemenid and who who wrote that?
1: It's it's actually uh, under Darius the Great, dating to about 519 BCE. It's the great Bisseton inscription that he had carved into the side of Bisseton Mountain in northeastern Iran. Um, right at the beginning of his reign, and in that he gives us the first lineage, really, um, of the Achaemenid dynasty, in which he says, um, this is my grandfather, this is my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, and sort of traces himself back to this founding father, Hakimanish uh, Achaemenes. So, so yes, and from there on in, um, there's barely a, a reference uh, in a royal inscription that doesn't have uh, Hamanisha as a uh, uh, reference in some way shape or form it's it's very very important
0: their identity your answer is very relevant and useful I realize I wasn't as specific with my question and it's probably because we're sort of interchanging the uh, the the Greek Latin uh, term Acha- ah, right. Achaemenid yeah, yeah, but yeah, do yeah. you know do you know on the Greek side if it was Greek a Greek person that first actually wrote Achaemenid, by chance and
1: it's, it's okay. if it's... it's it, It's hard to know, but I don't think we see it much before, much before Herodotus. Um, Certainly, when Aeschylus wrote his *Persae*, his *Persians*, the 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 great tragedy in four seven two, he doesn't seem to know of the name at all. He, He doesn't. Uh, reference that, which is strange, isn't it, you know, given that the whole um, of the the action revolves around Xerxes, Darius, and Xerxes' mother, Latossa. Um, So there's no evidence of it there, and certainly in this genre of persica, Persian things, which were written in the period before um, Herodotus, uh, which only survived to us in fragments, we don't have a mention of, of, of Achaemenes there, I think he becomes more popular, actually, in, in the Greek world. Actually, it's very late that we get, maybe post Herodotus. I'm trying to think. Certainly in Arian, you know, which is second century CE, um, so very late in the corpus, really, we get mentions of the Achaemenes of per se. Um, I wouldn't, I, so it would suggest, I, I'm really, I'm trying to think with the very first attestation. I would say it is later than Herodotus. I'm trying to think. Does he use Achaemenes in the Histories? I'd have to check. But I don't o- think yeah. he does. It's okay.
0: It's a. Uh, it's an. It's an audio. Yeah. You don't have the books in front of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, do, I don't. I
1: don't think he does. I don't think he does. It's quite. So it's quite late. It's okay.
0: Quite late. Okay. Um. So you spoke about who started the uh, the empire. So let so we're gonna spend. I uh, want to make sure there's sufficient background for the conversation. But we're gonna spend more con more time in the uh, Mediterranean basin and oh, their sorry. hegemony. So can you speak about um, what their territory would have been demarcated? So the empire's de- uh, territory would have been demarcated to in total, not just the Mediterranean, uh, where where their where their capital was and how they how they sort of uh e- evolved uh towards the Met- mediterranean and had holdings in that uh region
1: certainly so the the heartland then is southwestern iran um around what is today the area of shiraz the great city of shiraz in antiquity um the the great sort of areas of of um uh building activity were of course parsagad um which is the the sort of genius of cyrus the great that was the first ever stone built um, palace in iran Uh, and close to that then was the monumental palace city of persepolis i'm sure many of your listeners would have heard of that Um, a great great um, imperial Religious come ceremonial center, I suppose. One thing important to note is that the Achaemenids didn't have one capital per se. They were quite a nomadic people. They traveled around their empire constantly, especially in the heartland. So they flitted from Pasagad to Persepolis, and then they would go on to Susa, which is in Elam, uh, very, very ancient site. Darius the Great was probably born in, in Susa, and he built another splendid palace there. They also utilized the palace at, uh, the old palace of Nebuchadnezzar at Babylon. And then they would travel to the north, to the ancient city of Ek. modern day the city of hamadan so it was basically around this kind of triangle that the persian king and his court would migrate every year utilizing these different sites Um, but beyond that of course the empire then expanded so let's go to the east first of all Um, it ran from central iran right the way to the east in what is nowadays um, pakistan into afghanistan and also into north india as well into the punjab Um, It went up north to the south Corsicus in Russia. Uh, And so it was a huge eastern territory, vast eastern territories. Mm -hmm. Then from back to the center, let's work to the west. So under Cyrus, we see the conquest of Babylonia. So the whole of Mesopotamia falls to the Persians. After that, the whole of Anatolia falls to the Persians. And this is really where the Greek-speaking cities of Asia Minor uh, of the coast, um, uh, become subjects of the Persian Empire. From there on in, uh, we see the conquest of uh, the Levant, so that is Phoenicia, down the coast into uh, modern-day Israel-Palestine, and under Cyrus's successor, uh, Cambyses II, we also see the fall of Egypt, which he takes right the way down uh, to Ethiopia as well. So, Uh, all of this that is pulled together by the conquests and then the bureaucracy of the great who constructs these great roads which interlaces the empire so there was a road for instance which ran from sardis in anatolia in, in, in asia minor right the way down into susa there were others which went from susa to kandahar in afghanistan others called the royal road uh, or, or, or a secondary royal road rather which ran down um, the coastline of the levant right down into memphis in egypt so an interconnected uh, empire which was crisscrossed by um, the king's subjects. We know that because we have thousands of cuneiform tablets talking about rations of food and drink that were given to travelers as they traversed the the, the vastness of this empire. The way in which the empire was held together was through a series of governors, governorships or satrapies, um, essentially members of the royal family, very often brothers or cousins of the great king were given positions of governors satraps in these different regional areas and it was their responsibility essentially to raise the taxes to keep the peace uh, and to implement imperial um, policy um,
0: within those various areas of the empire by a large the the system worked very well um, the persians
1: imposed various forms of tax on these people not necessarily in in monetary form which was really still in its infancy at this period but in goods. Um, And we have long lists of um, taxation types uh, given to us in the works of Herodotus, for instance, but also we find represented on the walls of Persepolis in pictorial form, where individuals from all over the empire are shown bringing their their gifts, their tribute for tribute taxation, right? So, for instance, we know that um, Babylonia was very, very heavily taxed uh, in the form of uh, particular goods, um, such as textiles. Um, other places had more exotic things to sell or to send. For instance, in Anatolia, we know that the kings demanded, amongst other things, um, castrated boys uh, for the use of eunuchs um, within the, the Persian court. So the the, the tribute demanded was, was very various, uh, depended not only on the kind of um, goods that were produced from the soil, from the earth, uh, but also then uh, luxury items, including slaves.
0: You mentioned that um, their territories spanned uh, as far in the West as to uh, Anatolian, the Anatolian Peninsula, Egypt, the Le- Le- Levant. Getting to that point, was what was the geopolitical environment like in those areas? Was it fairly um, effortless? Uh, I say that term somewhat loosely, but was it fairly effortless for them to gain that kind of uh, territory? Um, was there not uh, overly established, consecrated, uh, concentrated uh, kingdoms at that point that could defend themselves? How how easy or challenging was it for them to gain uh, that initial territory in the in the uh, west for them, but what would be the Eastern Mediterranean?
1: Yeah, sure. So when Babylon fell to Cyrus the Great, immediately all of the territories of the Neo-Babylonian kingdoms um, came over to him, lock, stock and barrel. And we have in the magnificent report called the Cyrus Cylinder, reports of kings traveling from the coast of the Mediterranean, from the Levant, from Phoenician cities, Tyre, Byblos, Sidon and so forth, making the journey across to Babylon to um, offer gifts and offer the the homage um, to Cyrus the Great. So, in one respect, the, the great territories of Babylon came over very easily to to Cyrus. Um, he found resistance in the west of Anatolia um, as he pushed forward further through Anatolia and met um, the troops of uh, King Croesus of Sardis. Um, Sardis actually was a, a very difficult place to, to take it fell with uh, after a, a great resistance for several years so when the city of Sardis fell to, to Cyrus essentially all the little satellite states uh, which were around it; those that are run by princelings, essentially, uh, places like Miletus and so forth. Um, they then um, were were given over to the Persians. There was some resistance, uh, but really the the Persian armies, this this huge force of, by and large, mercenary soldiers, um, were able to conquer these territories. So by the time we come to the end of the reign of cyrus the great we have the whole of anatolia the whole of the western seaboard of asia minor and then the enormity of the long coastline of uh the levant already in the the hands of uh of the persians and then it was his son cyrus who sends his army into uh into egypt which was actually um in a state of disarray under the, the the final pharaohs of the the 29th dynasty. Um and Egypt fell um quite easily to the Persians. Uh they in, uh, entered into Egypt as they often did, as as invaders often did at Pelusium on the edge of the Nile. Uh and then with, with the help of a lot of Egyptian collaborators, actually, the the um the capital um, of Memphis fell to the Persians too. So, within uh, less than a decade, Persia had expanded its territories from this small tribal coalition in southwestern Iran to becoming the principal power in the, both the east and the west, um, in the whole of the Mediterranean basin, really. And we should note as well that having conquered Anatolia, um, the Persians also pushed across the Hellespont into Thrace and then into Macedon. And it's often forgotten that Macedon itself um, was a satellite, was a satrapy of the Persian Empire for some years. It achieved more kind of independence than a lot of the other greek speaking cities of Asia Minor uh, because of its distance from the imperial heartland. And because essentially the Macedonian kings, Alexander I, Alexander II and so on, um, really became, were happy to be um, subject peoples, um, essentially princelings um, under Persian rule. But it's important to remember that the Macedonians were um, essentially Persianized people. Uh, and that by the time we get to Philip II and Alexander Third, uh, Alexander the Great, um, the, the, the Persianization of Macedonia um, was pretty much complete.
0: Your comment about the um, Sardis uh, is very timely because uh, I published an episode on May 12th with uh, Professor Emeritus Andrew Ramage from Cornell right, yeah. Cornell University on ancient uh, Lydia um, so we spent a whole, uh, o- almost an hour uh, in that episode. Well, fantastic.
1: Well, you, you'll know how important Sardis was then to, to Cyrus because I mean, you know, its wealth was was unsurpassed. It really was. Um, and obviously, having taken already the treasuries of Babylon, adding to that the treasuries of Sardis, Kachin, suddenly Cyrus found himself really the wealthiest leader in the whole of the known world of that period. Mm. It was, uh, and and for the Greeks, you know, who uh, who experienced news of the of the fall of sardis back in the greek mainland i mean this was you know it's one of those moments in history which which just echoes down the generations it's like you know for my parents generation it was the assassination of 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 jfk or for my generation and i hope i see nothing as bad as this it was the the fall of the twin towers um and the attacks on america for the greeks the fall of sardis was the ultimate moment of devastation. And we know that many years later, we have this fantastic little fragment of a, of a, a discourse in which a, an old Greek guy um, says that, you know, when, when, when the winter time comes and I sit at night by the fire and I'm chewing on chickpeas and somebody new will come at home to see me, you know, and stay over, a guest will come. I always say to him, how old are you and where are you from? what age were you when the persians came you know there's this kind of Mm. moment in in Mm. greek identity um, where they understand that they are actually um, in great danger from this enormous superpower which has risen in the east so quickly too and then the the greeks get into this whole idea of, of trying to understand what this persian threat is all about and really it, it, it results of course in 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 the wars uh, of the the 490s and then the the 480s but from this period about 520 through to 480 essentially what we have in in, in a lot of greek texts and greek artworks are the greeks trying to get their heads around the idea of this persian incursion which is coming ever and ever closer to the greek mainland
0: what was uh the empire's tolerance around uh religion um so uh the territories that they took took over those those inhabited people what was their tolerance around uh their their religions customs and, and language
1: it was incredibly enlightened um you know when we think of empire building in antiquity i suppose the mind automatically goes to the romans right um, and also maybe you know, in more recent times to the British so if we look at the the british and the roman paradigms and what we have there is this idea of course that civilization is brought to these peoples um, it's it's a hateful term a hateful concept i really can't stand it so the idea of w- the way in which because the romans and the british did that was through the use of english or latin of course as the dominant language um through the um civilizing process of the education of others Um, through those dominant languages. Um, The Romans um, insisted on uh, Roman dress, for instance. You could tell where you were in the Roman Empire by the architecture, too. Virtually every Roman city um, right the way through to Damascus had a forum, a basilica, um, um, a, a stadium, a theater, and so forth. The Persians didn't adopt any of those tactics whatsoever. They had no interest whatsoever in stamping an imperial identity onto the people that they ruled. They allowed the people to speak their own languages, to observe their own religious customs, to build and to dress in their own ways, to educate people in their own manners as well. There was no attempt whatsoever to change. Um, So there was a kind of enlightened despotism, I suppose. Now, I don't want to paint a picture here of the of the of the persians being kind of um tree hugging uh um sort of open-minded bohemians um to build an empire of course it involves a lot of blood and a lot of slaughter and a lot of power grabbing and certainly the empire was built on that but it was maintained by a much more laissez-faire attitude than you would perhaps expect of empire building. Um, And in fact, the Achaemenid Empire provides us with a very different model of how empire might be run. As far as I'm concerned, empire is always an ugly phenomenon, but there are ways about it, going about it, which are actually a little bit more um, palatable, I suppose. Um, When things ran to the system then the persians were happy to let things run the satraps worked with landowners with local kings and local princes and maintained the status quo however when there was rebellion or when uh, especially tribute taxation was withheld from payment to the great king then the central authorities began to be very heavy uh, and that's when the uh, imperial system really imposes its power uh, upon the local population. So, for instance, um, the city of Sidon in modern-day Lebanon, ancient Phoenicia, when that rebelled against King Artaxerxes III um, in the third century, uh, in the fourth century BCE. Um, the result was that the city was simply razed to the ground, completely and utterly destroyed, and the population of that city was deported. So the women and children, in particular, of course, were sold off as, as slaves. So you don't mess with the great king, you don't push against the system. However, outside of that, if everything is running smoothly, then the Persians had no intention whatsoever of changing the, um, the, the administration the lifestyle or the culture of the occupied areas. And in fact, uh, conversely, the, the Persians took a lot um, from these areas. If you look at Achaemenid art uh, between the 6th the, the and the 3rd centuries BCE, you will find that it's a wonderful amalgamation of different styles. So Assyrian art, Egyptian art, Phoenician art, Babylonian art is all merged together into this wonderful melange, which creates something uniquely Persian, in fact. So the Persians were very ready to, to, to look at the sophistication um, and cultural um, highlights of different civilizations that they encountered, and to incorporate them into their own image. So a very different perception of rulership than we often get when we talk about Mediterranean or any other form of ancient empire building.
0: What's known about their sack of Athens?
1: Well, the the sack of Athens, we we know more about, of course, from the Greek perspective than anything else. And therefore we always have to be very careful uh, and play a little devil's advocate when we we are dealing with sources which are um, so heavily biased, of course. Um, The Greek writers um, utilized the idea of the Persian attack on um, Athens in particular to kind of create a a vision of Greekness, a a helocentricity, which of course has defined um, Mediterranean classical civilization right the way down to now, so this kind of us-and-them scenario. So we always have to be careful with the kind of barbarization of the Persians that we get from the, the Greek sources. Um, More recently, I've I've been working on a book recently which will be published early next year. It's called uh, Persians, um, The Age of the Great Kings. And in that, what I've tried to do is to write a history of Persia from the inside, using as much indigenous Iranian material as possible. So when I deal with the the Persian uh, um, expedition against Greece, 479 to 480. I try to think about it from the Persian perspective as much as possible. Why did Xerxes lead this enormous army into Greece? You know, what was what were the aims of this? Well, if you think about, you know, very often the 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 reason for territorial expansions was of course to to um, be economically lucrative. So we've already mentioned the takeover of Sardis, for instance, or Babylon, for that matter. Greece itself had very little to offer in the terms of kind of financial rewards. It didn't have good stone. It didn't have good agriculture. um, It had a few silver mines around um, uh, Athens itself. But otherwise, it was basically olive oil and rocks. That was the only thing. So when you think about the invasion of, of, of Greece, there has to be a more of an ideological reckoning. And the reckoning probably is... Um, First of all, a kind of payback for the way in which the Athenians had helped the Ionians try to shake off the Persian yoke back in the 490s, so there was a kind of a retribution going on there, but also I think it was to incorporate more comfortably the Mediterranean and the Aegean into the Persian Empire by taking in the kind of, you know, if you think of the, the map of the Mediterranean, where, where Grace sits in, we have a, basically a kind of uh, a great harbor, if you like, um, of this kind of arc of the Aegean, which could have been comfortably therefore into um, the control of the, the Persians. The Persians by and large, of course, were a land-based empire, but they did have use, of course, of the great Phoenician fleet based in uh, modern day Lebanon. And so really, with incorporating Greece into um, the empire, they also would have really maximized control of the seas as well, which could, of course, lead, therefore, to further expeditions to the west and to the riches that lay beyond um, the coastline of of the the Peloponnese uh, and the the coast of of Egypt and and Libya as well. So I think that they saw possibilities there for more of a maritime um, expanse uh, of, of the empire. When it comes to the actual um, account of the land and the the sea battles, of course, we are reliant in particular on the works of Herodotus, who, of course, is writing some 50 years after the events, and he is writing essentially what is a kind of panegyric, um, a a very... um, Biased, uh, one-sided account of the supremacy of the Greeks over this vast barbarian force. It is the moment when Greek identity gets its own stamp, uh, I suppose. Now, what we have from Herodotus, of course, is this um, sort of two-pronged attack by land and by sea as Xerxes leads this vast army um, through Bo- Boeotia uh, and into Attica. What he doesn't tend to tell us is the reality, of course, that many Greeks in the north of Greece, of mainland Greece, like the Thebans, the Macedonians, were actually allies of the Persians. And this was not uh, a a Persian Greek war. Uh, In fact, the Greeks had the Greeks of the north readily came over um, to the persian side and had been loyal subject to the persians and had benefited from persian rule uh, for many many decades so it wasn't simply an us and them situation but Herodotus likes to portray it that way as a kind of mythologizing process the other part of the mythology of course is the, is the story of the battle of thermopylae itself where here of course we have um, 300 spartans who kind of stand their ground, allowing the rest of the Greek forces to to put a distance between themselves and the encroaching um, infantry of Xerxes as they meet in this terribly narrow pass, the the hot gates or the gates of fire um, at Thermopylae um, in Northern Greece. The way in which of course, Herodotus writes this is a eulogy, really, a kind of great heroic struggle between these valiant Greeks and the, um, the the rather incompetent Persians. But at the end of the day, of course, Xerxes would have seen things very, very differently. In Xerxes' propaganda, no doubt he he spread the image that it was mission accomplished. He um, defeated, um, he drove back the Greeks, he defeated the, uh, the Spartans, and in fact he took the life of the spartan king the leonidas was killed you know and as far as uh, xerxes was concerned this was absolutely an absolute victory for him um, the gods were on his side and he marched therefore into athens what we know of um the events in athens again comes mainly from the greek sources we do know that when xerxes approached athens it was virtually a ghost town most of the Athenians had already up from their homes. They'd gone off to the island uh, of Salamis uh, and were basically watching the uh, Persian incursion into Athens from the safety of the island. Xerxes certainly set his men uh, to run amok around the city uh, and burned it. And archaeological evidence suggests that some. Um, stalwart Athenians had braced themselves on the Acropolis and it kind of barricaded it but this was easily broken through and then um, the Persians certainly burnt down the Acropolis um, destroyed its cult centers the Temple of Athene and in the 1910s um, German archaeologists discovered the remains of those Persian uh, invasions in the form of burial pits um, in which the Greeks, the Athenians had buried um, quite uh, on purpose the statues of um, warriors and young maidens called the Kouroi and the Korai. These beautiful standing statues, which the Persians otherwise would have would have smashed to pieces, so they were saved as a kind of preemptive strike, really, um, to take them away from marauding Persian hands. So what? Yes. Yeah, so so we don't have, uh, unfortunately, any accounts of the attacks on Greece from the Persian point of view. Um, That's not to say that they didn't exist, but they didn't exist in any narrative written form. The Persians didn't have any tradition whatsoever of writing down their histories. It wasn't a near Eastern way of working at all. But what the Persians did have, of course, and still have, is a long tradition of storytelling song and poetry and it would be very naive of us to think that there wasn't a persian version of the um the, the, the wars against the greeks doing the rounds the other thing to remember is this although for the greeks the the victory over the persians was their greatest moment the the moment that was made into legend and then to myth over successive generations of greeks For the persians themselves the loss of greece or the inability to gain greece as part of the empire was actually of very little consequence when you have an empire the size of persians the the, the greeks were merely a rocky outpost on the far fringes of the west nothing more than that now true xerxes himself had headed the army and had spent a lot of money but actually trying to hold Greece beyond the reasonable effort which was put into it, didn't appeal to him whatsoever. Far more important were the centers of Babylon. And we know that Babylon erupted into rebellion at the time that Xerxes was in Greece. And really the reason why Xerxes withdrew his troops from Greece was really to put down the Babylonian rebellion. It was far too important um, to him. He couldn't lose Babylon and its riches. Um, And likewise, um, rebellions in the east, in Bactria, modern-day Afghanistan, were always um, key to the Achaemenid kings as well. To put down any rebellions there were of greater importance. Um, Herodotus tells this incredible story, doesn't he, of, of, um, during the times of, of Darius the Great, when Darius would sit down to dinner and he would always say to his servant to tell him as he sat down to eat, sire remember the Athenians. Well, only a Greek, and especially a pro-Athenian like Herodotus could ever have written something like that, because the truth is Darius, Xerxes, and the various Attic Xerxes who ruled Persia gave very little thought to the Greeks at all. They were a minor inconvenience um, on the, the western periphery. Of more importance, I think, were the Egyptians, though, Um, they really um, did occupy the Persian mind a lot more. Um, And again, because, of course, access um, from the Nile to the Mediterranean and the way in which the empire in the West was neatly brought together by the sea-bearing ships of the Phoenicians into uh, and then down into the, the Nile Delta as well. This was a very convenient way, of course, to launch trade, but also to... And protect the coastline of the Mediterranean. So Persian um, control of Egypt was very strong, but Egypt did rebel from the Persian Empire and actually broke away from the Persian Empire at the uh, beginning of the fourth century BCE, and was out of the empire for going on sixty years until it was reconquered uh, by Attic Xerxes the and very very brutally brought to heel um, because essentially egypt was the breadbasket of the persian empire um, the persians needed the wealth of the nile its its rich mineral um, deposits which made the land of the nile so fertile the persians desperately needed that to feed its people especially in the western part of the empire
0: okay i feel like your pre uh anticipating some of my questions Lloyd which is great I was no this is great (laughs) this is great I was going to ask why you felt there wasn't as many uh writings in in the records you you commented on that I was going to ask about why didn't they continue to go west from Egypt you addressed Egypt naturally in your answer um Macedonia you mentioned that um and I don't know if it was a vassal state technically, but they had control over the Kingdom of Macedonia at some point. Correct me if that's yeah, off in any way. That's, exact, that's exactly right. right yes. So, so why? So they had they had difficulty in in Greece. Why didn't they uh, expand? You think uh, further, or perhaps they did. Can you comment on why they didn't go north from Macedonia, northwest from Macedonia? You know, working their way, uh, probably fairly e- easily. Aside from any conflicts, they would get in the way. But you know, working their way towards uh, what would be north, you know, north of Croatia, you're getting to the Italian yeah. Peninsula. They could develop yeah. maritime trade there. What what stopped them from uh, circumventing Greece? Order zones
1: for empires, of course, are always the dodgiest areas, and the Persians learned their lesson in the reign of Darius the Great, when they tried to push north into Scythian territory, so the area of the Black Sea and beyond, and the campaign there failed disastrously. You know, it was kind of like Napoleon's campaign in, in Russia. You know, it was defeated by the heavy, the snows, the winters, and so forth. And I think the Persians realized that while they had this ambition for empire without, without limit, the realities were harshly different, so I don't think they, I, I don't think they had any desire really to push beyond Macedon. Macedon became for them the kind of the limit, and even in Macedonia they allowed the Macedonian kings to have certain amount of of their own free rule as well. They Persianized them in terms of architecture, art, even things like the polygamy of Macedonian kings was taken from a Persian practice, but they don't seem to have any ambition to, to push beyond the, the highlands of Macedonia, which, of course, in itself is its, its own borderland, you know, the great pine forests and mountains of, of, of um, western Macedonia. They don't seem to have had any interest in going beyond there. Likewise, they didn't have any interest in the east going beyond um, the, the Punjab. It just becomes impossible to maintain empires. As Alexander of Macedon himself found out, Uh, when he tried to push south into India, you know, further into India. It just becomes untenable. Um, Likewise, their their borders in Egypt, down into Ethiopia, were never secure. Their borders beyond um, the Mediterranean on the coast of Libya were never really secured uh, because hostile territories, hostile tribes in these areas made it impossible to, to settle the areas. So I think the Achaemenids cut their losses. They understood what was feasible, what was doable. And in fact, one of the reasons I think you can ask the question, not really why did the, the Persian Empire fall, but really why did it last so long, was the fact that the Achaemenid monarchs were very pragmatic in understanding imperial space and how far they could push that space. And they preferred to govern the empire well, successfully, and economically viably, rather than keep on uh, with costly campaigns into the peripheries.
0: There you go. Really, pre- good,
1: really good question, Andrew. Really good
0: question. <laughs> there you go, preempting my questions again, uh, Lloyd, which is <laughs> which is wonderful. So, um, a closing question. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, and I'm going to I'm going to kind of uh, uh, maybe frame it a little bit differently, but I was obviously going to ask why did the empire fall? It famously falls to Alexander the the Great, Alexander the Third, and his in his army. Um Macedonia was a uh, a vassal state or some formation uh, like that. And again, if it's not a vassal state, please uh, please cl- clarify. But why why didn't Macedonia, do you believe continue the relationship that they had with the empire for for some time? And we we know that eventually the empire does does fall, but why do you think it fell and and, and what I'm getting at with that question is, um, this is a very large empire that probably had a lot of access to uh, arms and people to fight. Why? Why did a a state that, at least geographically, uh, you, you, uh, you know, lo- geographically it looks to be smaller, maybe not by a tremendous amount, but you know, it does look to be not as large as the Achaemenid Empire? Why do you think? the uh, Maced- Macedonia Empire uh, revolted and, and really uh, went to war with the Persians and why do you think they were successful in that?
1: Yeah, okay. So um, Macedon was a vassal state for about 50 or 60 years but then it kind of the, the Persians became less interested in it again because it was this sort of outcrop of of their empire, and they had bigger fish to fry elsewhere. So when that happened, the Macedonians began to take more control, and under Philip, of course, um, they begin their own expansionist policy south into Greece. Um, and then, of course, Philip had this aim always of of crossing the Hellespont and going into Persian territories, and kind of taking back. Um, or or at least sort of uh, putting the Persians in their place. It was a very ambitious thing. He never did it, but his son Alexander did. Now, what's interesting about the kind of historiography of this period, if you you look at the Alexander historians and then essentially what has been written for the last 2000 years on this, um, it's a picture of kind of decline of the Persian empire. You know, after Xerxes, everything goes really bad. You know, there are a series of bad rulers, decadence, harem conspiracies, eunuchs taking over. This is very much a kind of Eurocentric, orientalist spin that was put on the situation and has become a sort of uh, uh, a touchstone, really, of the historiography. But we've realized in the last 30 years of research, Iranologists like myself working on um, the indigenous uh, materials which are coming out of the empire, that the situation was very different. And at the time of Alexander's invasion of of the empire, it was actually in a very robust state of being. There was no sense of decline going on whatsoever. Darius III, the last of the Achaemenid kings, was a very able ruler and a very, very fine uh, military stratician as well. Egypt had been brought back into the, uh, the circle of the empire um, some decades before, it was wealthy, it was being run very well. We know this because of archeological finds in all places, in Bactria, in Afghanistan. Discovered back in the 1990s, we have a series of um, essentially uh, tax returns, which span the last years of Darius III and the first years of Alexander the Great. Alexander, when he conquered Persia, did not change any of its format. It didn't change its satrapal system. It didn't change its government at whatsoever, which strongly suggests that the empire was running extremely well. How did it fall? Then? Well, it wasn't a slow death. It was more like the empire was mugged, and 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 suddenly had its throat slit by Alexander. He was uh, a military genius. It is true. He is. He was. And his brutal attack on the Persians as he entered into enemy territory was nothing short of spectacular. I, I have to give it to the man. I'm not a fan of his at all. I call him Alexander Third. I barely use the great, but let's, let's, let's give credit where it's due. He was a genius. He led uh, an army with its new military tactics, no longer the hoplite hand to hand tactics, but the use of the sarissa, use of brilliant chariotry and, and uh, cavalry, and pitted this against Darius III, who was still fighting in a kind of more formalized way. Now, Darius and, and his Persian army quickly learned the Macedonian new style. And challenged Alexander at Issus and later at, uh, at um, uh, in, inside Mes- Macedonia uh, with these later styles of uh, fighting technology, but the truth is, Alexander was always one step ahead of Darius. Darius always seemed to be kind of chasing around the empire after Alexander, and essentially the the, the soldiery of Darius became worn down Um, alexander was very successful in battle after battle reducing the numbers of experienced persian soldiers including the mercenary soldiers who fought for darius the third so by the time we we get to galgamela um, even though darius has managed to get the numbers up again they are not really uh, in a position to 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 fight against alexander in the forces that you might have expected of the world's biggest empire dwindling numbers dwindling ability um, and finally i think fatigue puts an end to the empire Uh, and of course it is worth saying as well it's not alexander himself who kills darius the third darius the third is killed by a member of his family so actually it's the achaemenids turning on the achaemenids not for the first time i should say that finally uh, puts the death blow to the empire
0: itself When a group of people, regardless of the size to some extent, um, live and inhabit a certain area, even if they're not there anymore, uh, in some way they've influenced that area in contemporary terms. Uh, There's things like architecture, there's posterity, potentially. So the Achaemenid Empire was as far north, as you said, of... um, Anatolian Peninsula, Um, you could say perhaps Macedon in some way if it was a vassal state as far west as as Egypt. Um, How do you think their influence uh, lives on today in those areas?
1: I don't think it does, sadly, um, because Persian history by and large has been overwritten. Um, It's been overwritten by western historians starting from the alexander historians themselves so i think in the popular imagination or the popular memory there is very little to sustain the knowledge let alone the 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 influence that the persians had on the mediterranean world Um, and even within iran itself um, while the Achaemenids today are held up in the popular imagination as being the apex of, of Persian civilization. um, Iran's government takes a very different view to that, of course, you know, an Islamic regime um, thinks very differently about its pre-Islamic past. So even amongst Iranians themselves, um, there's a kind of uh, bypassing of the Persian empire um, in the official histories uh, of Iran. In the West, then this is this is really underplayed because of the, the very Eurocentric way in which Persian history has been approached. Um, the barbarian Persian is one of the images that comes from this, or of course, the the, the empire in decline, a decadent civilization that was too big for itself and, and finally imploded on itself. And that's really why you know it's important for us today to, to study ancient Persia on its own terms and understand that actually it was the world's great first great superpower and that it it ran its empire on lines which were fundamentally different from those of later western empires there's a lot we can learn from the Persian still
0: it has been enjoyable speaking with you lloyd uh thank you for coming on the show today
1: you're very welcome andrew thank you for having me it's been a great pleasure thank you so much
0: and you have that forthcoming book coming up as well that I know. So good wishes with the book launch. Thank, thank you so much. Put in your orders now. <laughs> okay, everybody. So the couple books that are published that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Llewellyn Jones wrote as examples, King and Court in Ancient Persia, 559 to 331 BCE, and Catesius's History of Persia, Tales of the Orient, I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Lloyd and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.